Thomas Jefferson famously created his own version of the Bible. Some of you may have heard about this. Uh, it was not a new translation, though, unfortunately, like the many translations we have today. Uh, rather, he went through his English Bible that he already had, and he literally cut out the verses he didn't like. He'd like a verse that says, oh, we ought to love one another. But then he literally cut out a verse about some of Jesus' miracles, himself being a naturalist. He cut out anything about the resurrection or Jesus' divinity or anything like that. He would cut them out, literally, of his Bible. You see, rather than letting the text say what it says, he literally forced it to say what he wanted it to say. Himself again believing as a himself being a naturalist, he took out all the things that contradicted or confronted his naturalism. Now, sadly, Thomas Jefferson is not the first nor the last to have done such a thing with the scriptures. Uh, Frankly, many people today essentially do the same thing, except they lack the honesty to do it with a razor and glue as Thomas Jefferson did. Making it because he himself, by doing so, obviously made himself the arbiter of what is true, what is false, what is to be believed. And many, many people today do the same thing by dismissing certain parts of the scriptures. You know, they, uh, but the way that they do by dismissing this book, that book, that verse, this thing that Jesus said, you know, They missed the opportunity to have what Jefferson had at the end of the day, which was his original Bible completely mangled. There was no visible representation of what he had done. Most people today just ignore certain verses. In fact, there's a troubling trend that I see today, people calling themselves red-letter Christians. Perhaps you've heard of the concept uh, where they say they only follow what Jesus says. Uh, Because, you know, many Bible translations have the words of Jesus in red in certain Bible translations. And their heart is basically, oh, don't tell me what Paul said. Don't tell me what Moses or somebody in the Old Testament said. I just want to hear what Jesus said. Which sounds pious at first glance, but really the the real reason when you talk to people, when you really get down to the nitty-gritty... The reason they hold that isn't because of their piousness, but lack thereof. It's because, you know, those verses might challenge their worldview as it did Jefferson. Or call something a sin that people don't want to acknowledge as a sin in some of those books that they dismiss, like Romans or Leviticus. It's almost always either insincere or just a well-thought-out, or poorly-thought-out excuse, I should say. However, the interesting thing is, when you actually read what those red letters actually say, you find out Jesus was a pretty big fan of the Bible. The whole Bible, it turns out. Every word of it. And while we have many reasons today to have a high view of Scripture, uh, if the all-knowing Son of God says in those red letters that the Scripture is inerrant, is true, and is authoritative, well, guess what? That's good enough for me. That's good enough for me. So the question is, and the question I want to address this morning is, well, what did Jesus say about Scripture? What do the red letters say about the black letters in your Bibles? And the first thing that Jesus said about Scripture 
is that it is more authoritative than the traditions or institutions of man. Churches like the Catholic and Orthodox churches claim that they have, as an institution, at least equal authority to the scriptures. Having the authority as their bishops and popes does also lay down the law, essentially, to say. Uh, However, the opinions of councils, bishops, and popes at the end of the day, and again, according to Jesus himself, are only the words of men. And they're only as accurate as whatever decrees that they make as the scriptures are. I've said this before many times, you know, I have no authority unto myself. Calling myself a pastor doesn't automatically give me any authority. This sermon is only as authoritative as I am accurately representing what the scriptures say. In the same way, I don't accept the uh, the creeds. In a few minutes, we're going to uh, recite the Apostles' Creed as we do every Sunday. But there is no power to that creed unto itself because it was written by man. It's only as authoritative as it accurately portrays what the scriptures say. And we do it every week because, well, we do think it's an accurate representation. Just as you guys come here for sermons every week because you you believe, hey, John is accurately explaining what the text says. It's, it's, it's the same thing, but there's no authority here unto myself. And the reason I say this is because back in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the Pharisees had made a tradition that was in direct contrast with God's word. And Jesus showed which one of these was to be honored at the end of the day. You see, they made this tradition that anything that was Corbin or given to God, dedicated to a particular thing for God, could only be used for that purpose. Oh, it's dedicated to God. Oh, I can't use that. I can't give it away. It's dedicated to God. I've dedicated all my things to God. And that, again, that sounds pious. But then the guy would have aging parents. And it's like, oh, I can't give you any of that stuff. It's dedicated to God. I can't give you my money. It's dedicated to God. And they were supplanting the commandment to honor your father and mother and to take care of them for the sake of a man-made tradition. And what did God say about this? He didn't say, oh, the, oh they, they, they need to correct the institution. Ah, oh, you know, oh, well, that's what they say. No, what, what Jesus says is that he, he calls them hypocrites. He slams them for nullifying the word of God for the sake of man-made tradition. That's what he tells them. Therefore, in terms of authority, the scriptures are in a class of their own in terms of what binds us and directs us as Christians. The scriptures aren't under the authority of the church as maybe other churches up the street might teach. No, they are above the church. Next, Jesus said in Matthew 5, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. What's he saying there? Well, he's referring to the Hebrew jot and tittle, the tiniest marks in the Hebrew pen that you could possibly make. Very similar to how we say, you know, we cross our T's and we dot our I's as, you know, a metaphor in the English language of, hey, every part of this is important. Make sure you get every little bit. Jesus is saying, hey, every bit of that Old Testament law is important and will not pass away. 
In other words, it's all important. We can't just disregard the book of Leviticus or one of the Ten Commandments just because we don't like something it says. It has, a, it has its own purpose. A lot of the Old Testament, especially in the law, was dedicated to Israel, not the church, to a particular nation state in the Old Testament, not for all Christians everywhere to believe. we got to interpret the passages correctly. But to say, oh, it's disregardable, it has no value, it has no use, we should be unhitched from it. No, that's not what it says at all. Jesus affirmed it in its context. In fact, Jesus continues to affirm even some of the most controversial parts of the scriptures. I'm sure that if Thomas Jefferson were to do to the Old Testament what he did to the Gospels, there was one book that he would take out entirely, and that's the book of Jonah. I mean, you, Pastor, I am a sophisticated New Jerseyan, don't you know? We don't believe such silly things as a whale swallowing a person for three whole days. Are you kidding me? Perhaps I'm saying it somewhat strangely, but that's the attitude of a lot of people. Well, first of all, Scripture says it was a great fish and not a whale. <laughs> but second of all, not only does Jesus affirm the historicity of Jonah and that whole incident, but he makes his claim to the resurrection based off of that text. Back in Matthew 12, Jesus said, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus saying, hey, just as that guy did it, just as he was three days and three nights in the in the fish, I will be three days and three nights in the whale. I totally said that wrong, but you guys all know what I meant. (laughs) Didn't have enough coffee this morning. But but no, that imagine making the claim and defining the historicity and importance of the most important moment in all of human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior off of the most controversial book of the Old Testament. That was bold of Jesus to do, but he did that because he wasn't ashamed of what the Scriptures said. He's not like, you know, so many in American culture that are ashamed of the gospel and are ashamed of the scriptures and say, yeah, I don't really like that that's in there, but it's in there, so I have to have to say that I believe it. No, Jesus wasn't ashamed, and neither should we, of what the scriptures honestly taught. And he wasn't ashamed of any of the other scriptures. He, um, he referred to Daniel in Matthew 24 as a prophet. And The critics today hate the book of Daniel because there's so much prophecy in it. So many accurate promises about how human history would unfold in advance. He talks about um, uh, so so many different things. And uh, the, the modern historical critic says, oh, this must have been written after the fact because it's so accurate. And it's so much information. Had to be written after these things, you know, posthumously. No, Jesus says he was a prophet. He wrote all of this in advance. They hate that, but that's what happened. And the more we critically look at the text, the more reasons we have to believe, hey, turns out Daniel was exactly who Jesus said he was. 
And the same thing with Noah's flood. Jesus talks about that in the affirmative. In fact, Jesus didn't shy away from the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, which probably is the most controversial part of the scriptures in modern America today. You know, it gets scoffed at a lot. A literal Adam and Eve? Are you kidding me? Don't you know we were evolved? Didn't you know we came from monkeys? But no, in Matthew 19, he uses Adam and Eve's marriage as an example for God's design and standard for marriage. Would God join together? Let no man separate. And it would be silly to make an argument off of pretend people that never existed to be your standard for what the scriptures say, for the sanctity of marriage, but yet he affirms them as historical people. He even says, from the beginning, it was not so regarding divorce, referring back to Adam and Eve's marriage, implying that Adam and Eve were right there at the beginning, not millions of years later, not billions of years later, as modern evolutionary critics um, propagate. Rather, they were there in the beginning, six days after the start of creation. So as much as it gets dismissed, even in Protestant circles, let's be honest. Jesus himself seems to be a young earth creationist. And we can choose to be ashamed of that or we can choose to embrace what the scriptures say. I know what I've chosen. But but what about the content of scripture? What did Jesus say about that? Well, in our first reading this morning, John 17, 17, Jesus said, your word is truth. Jesus did not say the Bible contains truth, which is a huge difference. Now, many liberal theologians want to say, well, the Bible contains truth. You know, kind of like how the Quran contains truth and the, uh, the, the Vedas, the Gitas, the Hadiths, so other, other so-called holy books, they contain truth. And they're right, they do contain truth truth. I studied uh, comparative religions in college. I have a degree in religious studies. I took a whole semester in Buddhism. And you know what? There's some interesting points. There's things about their beliefs that aren't wrong, about the state of mankind's nature being fallen to a degree. They use different language. You know, there's there, there's truth in it, but when you add it all up together, the whole system isn't true, even if parts of it are. Jesus, however, says the opposite is true of, the, of Christianity and of the scriptures. He says the whole thing, top to bottom, is true. The sum of its parts and the individual parts. It's all true. Thy word is truth. So when the Bible speaks about historical facts, they're correct. When the Bible speaks about uh, spiritual matters, they are correct. Jesus, in fact, said as much to Nicodemus. You know, look, I'm speaking to you about earthly things with the wind blowing here and there. Uh, how much more will I speak? How much more though I speak to you about spiritual things? And not only this, but the scripture is inerrant. Again, not my words, but Jesus's. John 10 35, Jesus says that scripture cannot be broken. And in Matthew 22, he rather humorously says the Pharisees are the ones in error because they don't know the scriptures. The scriptures don't have errors, but the Pharisees had errors because they didn't know the scriptures. And speaking of their usefulness and authority, Jesus quoted the vast majority of the Hebrew Old Testament. 
including both parts of the book of Isaiah. Some critics say, oh, well, this I, this part was written by one Isaiah. This part was written by another guy pretending to be Isaiah hundreds of years after the fact. Jesus said there is one book of Isaiah, and Isaiah wrote both parts of it. He cites both parts, both attributing it to the prophet Isaiah. So either Jesus is wrong or the critics. And I don't know about you guys, but when the critics start arguing with Jesus himself, I, I know who I'm going to take in that argument. I know who I'm going to believe. I leave that to you guys. Furthermore, Jesus also promised a new covenant. He promised the coming of the Holy Spirit who would lead them into all truth and that the Holy Spirit would teach them more even after their ascension, essentially promising the New Testament to come afterwards, part of the all truth that he promised the Holy Spirit would lead us into. So the New Testament is included too. However, one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture is in Luke chapter 24. It's a little long for us to have done as one of our readings this morning, but it's, uh, it's the talk that Jesus had in the road to Emmaus. After his resurrection, he, he met with two uh, disciples who were on their way to Emmaus, walking the road, and Jesus comes along talking with them. And if I could have been an observer of any biblical conversation, that would have been it for me personally because it says there after he says there beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them these two men on the road to Emmaus in all the scriptures the things concerning himself so guys i would have loved to have seen the sermon on the mount wouldn't you guys I, to hear that in my own ears how powerful that would have been but, you know, at the end of the day, I can read what he said. We have that recorded in Scripture. Uh, I, who here wouldn't have loved to have been there in the room for the Last Supper, where the first communion was given? How emotional would that have been? And as beautiful as that would have been, you know, we, have, we, we partake in a part of it once a month on Sundays, as we're about to in a few minutes. But even more than that, there's Passover presentations where they go through essentially the script they would have followed. You could have easily seen a whole lot of it. We had pass, uh, we had uh, Dr. Greg Hegg come here, uh, what, like two years ago and give a Passover demonstration here at this church. It was wonderful. So we can get a window into that. But all that we have of this conversation that Jesus had going through all the scriptures is this one short little thesis statement. I want the whole conversation. I would have loved to have been a fly in the that is That is worth more than any seminary education right there, this conversation. But, and why is it important? Why am I making a big deal out of it? Because he says here that all Scripture, Moses and all the prophets, point back to Jesus. The things concerning himself. It's all about Jesus at the end of the day. The whole book is about him. We understand our origins. We understand our fallen nature and why we need to be saved from the creation account that we referenced earlier. But we also see there a glimmer of hope that a savior is coming who's going to crush the head of that serpent referred to. 
We learn from the law that no one is so righteous that we can be saved by our own works or our own doings, our own religious experiences. We have to trust in that Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. From the tabernacle and the temple, we see that God is holy and must be worshipped in holiness and reverence in our hearts. From the historical books, we see the rise of the house of David from which the promised Savior would come. From the prophets, we see what pleases and displeases God, what kind of religion pleases God, while also giving more details about this coming Messiah, who, for instance, would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed, from Isaiah 53. Details like that. And then we have the Gospels, the culmination of it all, the the big moment in all of Scripture, the central point of which it was all pointing to, where Jesus gives his life as a ransom for you and I, so that all who would look to him would be saved. And then we have the rest of the New Testament pointing back towards the cross. We have the Old Testament pointing towards the cross and we have the New Testament looking back. The Old Testament, they're looking forward towards this coming Savior and the rest of the New Testament afterwards, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, the whole rest of the New Testament looking back and saying, how now do we live in light of this amazing grace that Jesus has shown us? It's how it all fits together in a beautiful truth. So as we look to wrap up this morning, I've heard somebody once remark that they desired to make, a number of years ago, a Jesus-approved Bible, where in it, it would include all the words that Jesus has himself approved of, and they would put all of those words in black ink. And wouldn't I would put that into production myself. I would flip my own dollar for that if you didn't already have one. The Jesus-approved Bible is the Bible you guys have in your hands, in your laps, and in the pews. This is the Jesus-approved Bible. And frankly, that's one of the reasons I love about our pew Bibles. They don't have the red letters. (laughs) It's all black. It's all approved. (laughs) I, I, I refuse to see a distinction, although it can be helpful to find a particular phrase. I don't find it to be... It creates a false dichotomy of, oh, these are the important words, but these are not as important. No, every letter, every jot and tittle, every dot and iota of Scripture is important. Not because I said so, but because Jesus did, because he did. So therefore, because of that, we can have confidence when we read what the Scriptures say. If you're following us in our Bible in a year plan right now, and we're just about to enter into the prophets, and we've gone through all of this other stuff, and we've gone through the law, it's easy to dismiss it, but no, every part of it is important. Whatever part you find yourself in, it's true. It's accurate. It's for our instruction. And it's part of this overall narrative of our fall and our salvation which was obtained alone through the cross of Jesus Christ, which we're about to commemorate and celebrate a few minutes at this table. And again, it's not true because I said so, but because Jesus himself, in those red letters, said so himself. And the Son of God, who by nature cannot lie, tells me so.
I don't know about you. That's good enough for me. Thanks be to God.